tell you a little story about a man called Josh, who just led worship. Where is he? I'm going to embarrass you now. <laughs> so um, at the Scottish uh, Leadership Conference last year, um, I was involved in the worship ministry, and I was asked, hey, Jess, is there anyone coming up with you from the Kingdom Vineyard who um, we're going to set up a space um, next to the uh, main hall where we're going to have some, just some time of worship? And uh, do you have anybody that could like, fill an hour's slot of worship? And I thought, okay, so this is like a sort of like 24-7 prayer room or something like that. And I had loads of people coming up, so I just asked the whole group of people coming up, you know, does anyone want to lead an hour's worship? And Josh volunteered, and it turned out I'd got mixed messages. The whole, basically it was an hour of worship, like, and that was it. So it was advertised as, Josh is going to go and lead worship in this space now. And I hadn't, I totally missold it, but he totally bossed it. So, um, well done, Josh. It was great. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, anyway, we can start the recording in a minute. Um, I'm going to invite Isabella to come and, and read our scripture for this morning uh, in just a moment. Yeah, you can come up. You can come up. Um, this morning, we are continuing our series in Luke's Gospel, and uh, although they're all having fun downstairs, we're now going to talk about demons and Satan's kingdom and all that sort of thing up here, so pretty grown-up stuff up here. So, But we can still be fun and creative in our prayer ministry, all right? So uh, you can look forward to that. But Isabella's going to come up now and uh, read our scripture, which is from Luke chapter 11, verse 14, and uh, reading up to verse 26. Luke eleven fourteen to 26. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out the demons by Beelzebul. Now if I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons' exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons... And the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It wanders through the waterless regions looking for a resting place, but not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and live there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Thanks, Isabella. So uh, if you uh, are new to this church, then you might have already wondered why we spend so much time uh, talking about the kingdom 
why we're called the Kingdom Vineyard and what all that is about. So uh, this sermon will hopefully illustrate some of uh, what we mean by uh, the phrase, the Kingdom of God. Um, I'm going to start by offering something of a commentary on the text that we've just read, some of the things I think are going on in the text that maybe don't uh, uh, leap out or don't really suggest themselves at face value, because we've got to do a bit of work to get into the mindset of Luke and the people that he's um, documenting in this story to try and understand the way that they perceived reality, because this is a very different uh, culture to the one we exist in today. And from that place, we need to then do the work of trying to understand the nature of our own reality and what we're supposed to do with what we learn uh, from this passage of Scripture. So first of all, we get a brief description of an exorcism. We don't know much about the details, but it seems that the demon is first described as mute, and then the afflicted man is also described as having been mute. And the implication is that when a spirit takes up residence in a person, that person begins to exhibit some of the characteristics of that spirit. And the crowds, understandably, are absolutely amazed and astonished at what's just happened. This person who they knew, who had been mute, unable to speak, is suddenly able to speak. And I wonder what he said. It can't have been uh, that interesting. If he hadn't spoken his whole life, he probably tried to say something like, hello, I don't know. But... Um, the astonishment of this crowd, however, is not all positive. It's mixed with a bunch of suspicion and fear. And it's important to note at this point that no one in the crowd denies that something miraculous has happened. There's no skepticism about that whatsoever. The point of debate is about where the power and the authority came from that Jesus is exercising. And they accuse Jesus of operating in the power and authority of something called Beelzebul, and I'll come back to that. Some others who are there and skeptical um, or, or, or curious about what's going on, they ask Jesus to perform a sign from heaven. And at first it seems a little odd that they would want further proof of Jesus' power. But I think that maybe what they're after is a clearer demonstration of where that power is coming from. I think that um, transformation in a person is one thing, but if Jesus were able to, say, make the sun stand still in the sky, or make the rains fall, or make the sky change color, or something crazy like that, then they would have a little bit less doubt as to whether this was God or something else. I think that's what is meant by a sign from heaven. But Jesus doesn't give them that because he knows what they're thinking. And instead he just points out the simple failure in logic that they are exhibiting. If Satan is at work enacting some kind of plan and then simultaneously coming along to undo the effects of that plan, then there would be no structural integrity to the kingdom of Satan, and the whole thing would collapse. And when Jesus says this, he's offering us some explanation uh, to some of the uh, assumptions that underlie the people's questions. First of all, is about who this Beelzebul is. 
The name probably harks back to the days of the prophet Elijah, uh, who had spent many a day battling uh, prophets of false gods known as Baals. And in 2 Kings, Elijah confronts one such worshiper who wants to consult a god called Baal Zebub. And that's probably where the name Baal Zebul comes from, a little sort of uh, um, distortion of the language, but that can happen. Baal Zebub actually translates as Lord of the Flies, if anyone was wondering where William Golden got his inspiration from. But when Jesus goes on to describe Beelzebub in the same uh, in, in, in the same terms as Satan, it becomes clear that we're talking about one and the same. It's not unusual to find different names for Satan. There are loads of them, both inside and outside the New Testament and uh, the Old Testament, and this appears to be one of those names. So that's an assumption that people can understand. Beelzebub is equivalent with Satan. The second thing is that according to Jesus, and seemingly accepted by this audience, it's an assumption that everybody seems to um, to, to have um, underlying this story, is that Satan is some kind of ruler over some kind of kingdom. And there's, some, there's loads of really fascinating, or I think it's fascinating, Jewish uh, literature from around this time and before this time mostly apocalyptic texts, about um, how uh, Satan has dominion over a bunch of fallen angels who actually um, w- w- which, um, uh, wreak havoc on earth. And um, apart from all that really fascinating literature, we have evidence in our own Bibles. So in the New Testament, in Revelation, you see this story of Satan being cast out of heaven and with him all of the angels that are re- rebellious against God with Satan. And uh, that text and a whole bunch of the other texts that I mentioned probably points to that as an origin um, for demons. But whatever their origin story, Satan is obviously in control. Satan's the boss. And so Jesus points out the logical fallacy in the argument against him. Why would Satan go around undermining the work that he has his own minions doing? If he did that, his kingdom would fall. And there's an assumption again here that Satan's kingdom is not falling. Satan's kingdom is actually up and running and functional. And so, no, Jesus is not acting in the power and authority of Satan. What's happening here is not a demonstration of Satan's kingdom in civil war, but of God's kingdom coming up against it. Satan is described as a strong man who has a fortress and strong armor. But Jesus is the stronger man who comes in to break down the strongholds of the satanic kingdom and eventually attack and overpower him, ridding him of all his means of self-protection. At that point, he lays down a need to respond to this demonstration of God's power. It's time for people to stop making these illogical arguments against him, demanding further signs so that they might be further convinced and further satisfied of his origins, and instead pick a side. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, 
and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There appears to be no middle ground here. No demilitarized zone where we can all remain neutral. To not join with Jesus is equivalent to rejecting Jesus. It sounds tough and uncompromising. But he then goes on to explain what the practical implications of neutrality actually are with this parable. If a person's life is like a house that has just evicted an unwelcome squatter, that person then needs to take steps to prevent the squatter returning with loads of nasty, nasty mates. And the only way to do that is to invite the stronger man to come and stay in the house. So Jesus isn't a bully saying, join me, otherwise I'll destroy you. He's actually appealing to people's self-interest in this. He's saying, if you want to stay safe, get with me. It's out of concern for the one who has had his life newly restored to him by the exorcism of this demon that he now says, don't leave yourself empty. Let me come up into your life and set up an outpost of my kingdom so that the enemy can never attack you ever again. So that's what I think is going on in the text. But really, if I just did nothing but paraphrase what I read in the Bible, then I wouldn't be doing much of a service to you guys. So I've been seeking the Lord about what he has to say through this text to us at this time. And to be honest, this has been a really difficult talk to write, mostly because I've been really ill. And I don't want to over-spiritualize the struggle, but it does feel kind of sus, to be honest. Um, because I feel as though there are some steps, some active steps that God wants us to take today as a church and as individuals. And it's on a road that we're already on. During Advent, we heard this emerging theme of holding on to hope. It's not one that we planned. It's really one that just sort of emerged organically holding on to hope in the midst of everything. And after that, in the new year, Jim gave his talk about the spiritual emphasis that we want to have as a church in 2024, which is to remember John uh, chapter 1, verse 5, which says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overpowered it. And before I go on to say what I believe God is saying to us through this passage, I just want to pick up a couple of Jim's points from that talk. The first is to do with the language of that verse. There is a real struggle going on between light and darkness. The darkness in that verse is trying to overpower, overwhelm, or overcome. It's a battle. But the darkness will ultimately never succeed because Jesus is the light. And Jesus is, as the Christmas carol, very God. 
Jesus cannot be beaten. There's a wonderful, I'm probably misquoting, but I think it's Martin Luther King says something like, darkness cannot cast out darkness. Only light can do that. And Jesus is the light. So that's point number one, is that there's a struggle between light and darkness, but the light will win. The second thing is that um, this spiritual emphasis for us as a church is not so much an action point, it's not a to-do that we need to add to our ever-burdened lists, but rather it's just something that we need to know. It's a truth we need to hold close. More than once in the Bible, God commands the leaders of his people to be still, and know that I am God. To lay down our striving and instead rest upon the strength of God who is infinitely more capable than we are. And when it comes to a battle between light and darkness in the spiritual realm, that's a battle that only God can win. And so we rest on him. So those are the two things I just wanted to remind you of before I go on to say any more. There's this war waging between light and darkness. And there's this truth that we must hold close and rest upon and rely upon because the darkness is so very dark. And so, on to what I think God is saying. I think there are three specific things that are related to this struggle. And at the end of these three things, I'm going to invite three specific types of response that I don't think any of us, if we're calling ourselves Christians, really get out of. So probably need to like get rid of some chairs and have a big old ministry sesh up here later. Anyway, these three, these three things are as follows. First of all, demonic oppression is a thing. It just is. But I also want to say, let's not get carried away. I have to add in that last bit because the more Pentecostally inclined among us are prone to call anything that we don't like demonic. But demonic oppression is a thing. That's the first thing. Second thing is, there is a war going on and we have to pick a side. There is no neutral zone. And the third thing is, we've got to get our houses in order. Demonic oppression is a thing. There's a war going on, and there's no neutral zone. And we've got to get our houses in order. So first thing, demonic oppression. Like I said, some people can get really trigger happy with saying this or that is demonic. Now, I don't really want to go down the rabbit hole of saying what is or isn't a demon, except to stake a claim that I'm pretty sure there's something demonic going on with printers. <laughs> uh, also, those little plastic sachets of ketchup that you get in cafes that are really difficult to open and get. Uh, also, the, I've got a list here. Uh, the, uh, the increased volume of advert breaks on the telly. Uh, books that have end notes rather than footnotes and the paucity of beer mats on tables in pubs. Something demonic going on in these things. But anyway, sorry, back to the serious stuff. Printers, definitely, right? <laughs> right? 
Anyway, listen, we know there is something wrong with the human experience. And I believe this, that there are times when there is demonic activity involved in that. But rather than playing the game, is it or isn't a demon? Isn't it a demon? Instead, I want to just lean on the power of God to heal and restore what's broken. Jesus, when he describes the outcome uh, of this exorcism as the coming of God's kingdom, uh, means that no enemy of God can withstand him when his kingdom comes. So rather than play hunt the demon, why don't we just ask God for his kingdom to come? Jesus tells us to seek his kingdom first. And I think that's what he's wanting us to know today. Now, I'm not saying that there is zero possibility of any of us gaining wisdom from the Holy Spirit about the causes of brokenness. And this passage tells us that there is a mute demon that is the cause of this person's muteness. But the power to deliver that afflicted man doesn't come from that knowledge. It comes from the breakthrough of God's kingdom. And that we can pray for, however much we know about the causes or otherwise. Jesus' concern appears to be not the exorcism itself, but the deliverance. He's concerned about the person who is in front of him that is afflicted. Back in chapter 4, when Jesus enters the synagogue and opens the scroll of Isaiah, he does not say, I have come to kick Satan's ass. He said, God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so it's important for us to know that demonic oppression is a thing, but not so that we can play hunt the demon, but because we need to remember that this darkness is constantly attempting to push back against the light and that we are powerless to do anything about that except by appeal to the one who is light. Secondly, there is a war going on and we have to pick a side because there's no neutral zone. Now in terms of the war, Jesus has already won the decisive victory. In other words, he has overpowered the strong man in this story. But battles still continue to rage. This is what we call the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. It was once really helpfully illustrated by one theologian as being like the difference between D-Day and VE Day in World War II. On D-Day, the tide turned and the victory of the Allied forces was irreversible. But that period of time between D-Day and VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, saw more deaths than at any other part of the war. So the victory had been won, but the battles still raged on. And that's what's going on in the spiritual realm as well. God has won, but the battles rage on. 
The challenge for us is this. Are we still waiting for some sign from heaven before we pick a side? God speaks in countless ways, but he has spoken most loudly and most clearly through Jesus. And waiting for something else is a luxury that no one can afford. There is no time for sitting on the fence. God has spoken through Jesus, and it's time to make a choice. If you've never done so, let today be the day. And we'd love to help you make that move towards the light. And if you have chosen it before, choose it again today. In Revelation, anyone who knows me knows that I'm either going to mention Revelation or Ignatius. Today it's Revelation. In Revelation, there's this song of heaven that we hear. We're... we're, uh, invited through the open door of heaven and we see what the angels there sing. They sing, worthy is the Lord to receive honor and praise. And they sing it over and over and over again. It's just as true now as it ever was, as it will ever be. It never gets old. Do it again. And the third thing, we have to get our houses in order. Back to Revelation, chapter 3, verse something. Um, There's uh, the letter to the church in a place called Laodicea. And in that letter, Jesus says, he stands at the door and knocks. The terrible indictment of that church is this, that Jesus is outside and not inside. They're busy being a church while... Jesus is not even in the building. Jesus is knocking on the door, asking to be invited in. This is a church that is on the fence. Neither hot nor cold, but instead lukewarm. And instead of standing at the center of the church, Jesus is outside asking to be let in. But he says, if you hear my voice and open the door and welcome me in, I will come in and I will feast with you. It's a promise of beautiful fellowship. And unless Jesus is in the house, then any squatter can invite his mates to come and trash the place. What I'm talking about is this, spiritually. What have we let into the house? What are we feeding our minds and our spirits and our bodies What have we given a foothold to in our lives? If we really want to invite the light to come and banish the darkness, that means we need to also look at these untidy rooms of our houses and tidy up, clean up, let the light shine. There's a beautiful book called The House of the Soul, by one of my favorite authors, a woman called Evelyn Underhill. And she describes uh, just this. Uh, She takes the image that Paul uses of our bodies being temples, places where the Holy Spirit lives and dwells and is glorified and experiences communion with his people. 
But sometimes we have these rooms in our houses that we just don't like to go in because they're in such a state. It's time to open the door and let Jesus into those rooms. And just as the spirit of muteness that dwelled in the man made him mute, so the spirit of God, when the spirit of God comes to dwell within us, so we will take on a likeness. So too the character of God begins to change us and we manifest the beautiful person of Jesus in our own lives. And so today, there is a to-do, but it's all about pressing in to this truth that the light is overcoming, has overcome, will overcome the darkness. And so these three things that I've outlined this morning, or to anything else, I invite you to respond, but I invite you in these three specific ways as well. First of all, so the need to respond to the reality of demonic oppression and the fact of brokenness and hurt in our lives. Let's press into prayer for the things that we want and need to overcome. Let's lean in to the invitation that God puts before us to follow him so that his kingdom power might be victorious against those things that assail us. Secondly, to the need to respond to Jesus' call to get off the fence, let's make or renew our commitment to living under the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. This season of the church, known as Lent, uh, is a time traditionally for purging those things of our lives that have gained a foothold, that um, have become idols in our lives, things that um, rather than becoming things that we use have become things that use us. It's time to submit again to the king and let him shed light in the darkness. And then the third thing, to the need to respond to getting our houses in order, let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within us, to remain within us today and always. So let's press into prayer for the things that we need to and want to overcome. Doesn't matter how many times you prayed for it before, let's pray for it again. The need to get off the fence. Let's make that commitment for the first time to follow Jesus as king. Or let's just renew our commitment to live under his lordship. Or thirdly, just to get our houses in order. To invite the Holy Spirit to come in to change us, to make us more into the likeness of our Savior Jesus Christ. So I told you it wasn't going to be fun, but it is going to be good. So why don't we stand, if you're able, and I'll pray.
Come, Holy Spirit. I'm conscious that there are uh, a lot of new faces in front of me just now, and I just want to um, maybe just point out that uh, this time is, is an opportunity to respond to what God is saying, not necessarily what I have said. If something I have said has um, in any way triggered uh, something upsetting or painful in you, then perhaps just take this moment to ask the Lord, what are you saying? What are you doing? What are you wanting me to, how are you wanting me to respond? What are you showing me? And then what we do is we just use this space at the front of the church to, um, to invite people to take a physical step uh, to offer a move towards what we believe God is asking for us. It's important that we uh, put our bodies where our minds and our spirits want to go. And it's also important that we are brothers and sisters in community with one another. So we come alongside you, we ask you what you want to pray for, and we just offer to lay a hand on you. You don't have to accept the offer. But really, uh, God has chosen uh, this way to minister to his people. And so don't miss out. And so I ask again, come Holy Spirit. Would you be a shining light upon the darkness of our lives? And if the light is revealing something in your life that you really did not want to see, did not want to look at, then that's something great that we want to just pray for because God has the power to deal with that. Calm Holy Spirit, we welcome you. So the band are just going to start playing. And you can respond in whatever way uh, you like. You can stay where you are. You can just do your business with God in your seat. But for those of you who really want to uh, just kind of seal the deal, it really is important to just make that physical step and to come into community and uh, submit whatever that is before the Lord, together with your brothers and sisters.